Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Ajnana Timarandasya, Jnana Jana Shalakaya, Chakshuru Militam Yena, Tazmai Shri Gurave Namaha. So we are continuing our study of the Bhagavatam, and we are on uh, text 35, I believe, of the uh, fourth chapter. Let me just get that here on my computer. 35. Well, it's 35 to 39, actually. It's a long one. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, yeah. Well, and soon Narada Muni is going to join the party. Yeah. And uh, Daksha is going to crash the party. Yeah. And it's really fascinating because Daksha, Daksha is going to get the darshan of the Lord, and then he's still going to be kind of angry at one of the Lord's great devotees in the next chapter. <laughs> so he's a very interesting person. So we are on text 35 to 39. And these verses up to verse 42 talk about Daksha being graced with the darshan of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And we are reading up to verse 44, which is the next section where Krishna or Vishnu responds to Daksha's prayers. Okay. Sri Sukadeva Goswami said, the, origin, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Hari, <clears throat> who is extremely affectionate to his devotees, was very pleased by the prayers offered by Daksha. And thus he appeared at the holy place known as Agamarshana. O Prichit Maharaj, o Maharaj Prichit, best of the Kuru dynasty, the Lord's lotus feet rested on the sh shoulders of his carrier Garuda, and he appeared with eight long, beautiful, uh, mighty, very beautiful arms. In his hands he held a disc, conch shell, sword, shield, arrow, bow, rope, and club. In each hand a different weapon, all brilliantly shining. His garments were yellow and his bodily hue was deep bluish. His eyes and face were very cheerful, and from his neck to his feet hung a long garland of flowers. His chest was decorated with a koshtuba gem and the mark of Srivatsa. On his head was a, gorgeously, a gorgeous round helmet, and his ears were decorated with, earring, with earrings resembling sharks. All of these ornaments were uncommonly beautiful. The Lord wore a golden belt on his waist, bracelets on his arms, rings on his fingers, and ankle bells on his feet. Thus decorated by various ornaments, Lord Hari, who is attractive to all the living entities of the three worlds, is known as Purushottama, the best personality. He was accompanied by great devotees like Narada, Nanda, and all the principal demigods led by the heavenly king Indra and the residents of various upper planetary systems such as Siddhaloka, Gandharvaloka, and Charanaloka. Situated on both sides of the Lord and behind him as well, these devotees offered him prayers continuously. So text 40. Um, seeing that wonderful and effulgent form of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Prajapati Daksha was first somewhat afraid, but then he was very pleased to see the Lord, and he fell to the ground like a stick, Dandavat, to offer his respects to the Lord. As rivers are filled by waters flowing from a mountain, all of Daksha's senses were filled with pleasure. 
Because of his highly elevated happiness, Daksha could not say anything, but simply remained flat on the ground. Text 42. Although Prajapati Daksha could not say anything, when the Lord, who knows everyone's heart, saw his devotee prostrate in that manner and desiring to increase the population, he addressed him as follows. The Supreme Personality of God had said, O oh, most fortunate Prachetasa, because of your great faith in me, you have attained the supreme devotional ecstasy. Indeed, because of your austerities, combined with exalted devotion, your life is now successful. You have achieved complete perfection. And text 44. My dear Prajapati Daksha, you have performed extreme austerities for the welfare and growth of the world. My desire also is that everyone within the world be happy. I am therefore very pleased with you because you are endeavoring to fulfill my desire for the welfare of the entire world. Um, so Prabhupada writes in the purport, the living entity's struggle for existence within the material world is due to his rebellious nature. That's something for us to think about. Unless a living entity surrenders to Krishna, he must continue this life of struggle. The Krishna conscious movement is not a fad. It is a bona fide movement intended to promote the welfare of all conditioned souls by trying to elevate everyone to the platform of Krishna consciousness. And we'll hear more about the importance of taking the Krishna conscious movement seriously uh, in some future purports. But then skipping a little to the next paragraph, Prajapati Daksha is trying to benefit the conditioned souls by begetting them to give them a life with a chance for liberation. So this world is a chance for liberation. Liberation means surrender to Krishna. If one begets children with the purpose of training them to surrender to Krishna, fatherhood is very good. Similarly, when the spiritual master trains the conditioned soul to become Krishna conscious, his position is successful. If one gives the conditioned souls a chance to become Krishna conscious, all his activities are approved by the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is extremely pleased, as stated here, Prito Hum. Following the examples of the previous acharyas, all the members of the Krishna conscious movement should try to benefit the conditioned souls by inducing them to become Krishna conscious and give them all facilities to do so. Such activities constitute real welfare work. So we shouldn't be so concerned, is this the best way to spread Krishna consciousness? That way, you know, that we'll go on disagreeing with one another on that for a while. But um, Prabhupada says here, if, but if one gives the conditioned soul a chance to become Krishna conscious, all his activities, stamps, approved. Now, of course, you know, within reason, you know, we don't uh, open up uh, a chain of McDonald's or something and, you know, in order to spread Krishna consciousness, but within reason, uh, Krishna is extremely pleased, as stated here. So giving others a chance to be Krishna conscious is such a, a way of pleasing the Lord. Prabhupada also in the purport, he goes from the idea of pleasing Krishna to, okay, and how do you do that? To please his devotees. And that, of course, we've spoken about so many times, but, it, you know, it's something that you can't, like, uh, you can't speak about enough that it's just such a nice, simple, practical, makes logical sense way of making spiritual advancement is to please those people that are dear to Krishna. 
So any, uh, what are your thoughts or realizations or comments on this uh, 44th verse? Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes, Raghunanda Prabhu. Um, sometimes like uh, human beings take the either or approach. Either I will do charity or I will uh, uh, take a religious path. But it's a complete package giving both. Like charity on the material level as well as helping that soul to connect with the Supreme Lord. Both should go hand in hand because there are many people out there who are in need of uh, material needs, even to just on a day to day basis. So, cannot just go there and preach to them about uh, surrender to God, talk about bhakti. We can take care of their material needs as well as help them connect with the Supreme Lord. Yes, and now some people might take exception, some devotees might take exception to what you're saying. because they might say that uh, uh, it's like, you know, the person is drowning and you save their coat instead of saving them. So that, that's one side of the, uh, one, one part of the view. Another part of the view is that Prabhupada once said that if people are hungry, you know, if they're not getting enough to eat, then you can't really talk to them, like you said, about, about Krishna because, you know, they only have one thought in mind, Right. So it, it, it's great if we can do some kind of combination, right? Like, for example, when we're distributing food, we're not distributing food, we're distributing prasadam. Or when we're distributing prasadam, if there's, uh, like they do at uh, uh, the Krishna lunch at uh, the University of Florida, they have a kirtan or bhajan going on near where they're serving prasadam. So they get the prasadam and they get the holy name. So if we can rack our brains and find ways to just to increase the different ways that we uh, can benedict people. But yeah, like that. But I mean, your point is taken that if, if people are really destitute, it's very hard for them to be God conscious Prabhupada because they're, you know, they're just trying to look forward to the next meal. Right. Yeah. Other thoughts? I, I had one. Yes, Andy. I was taken by the, um, the kind of, confrontation between Daksha and Narada Muni. They're both Krishna conscious, right? Right. But then I found out, which I didn't know, everybody else probably already knew this, that the character of Narada Muni that we see where he's always roaming around and popping up, that was created by this confrontation with Daksha when he he cursed him, right? So, Well, what was the curse? That he would have to roam around all the time. <laughs> Right. Because he was just skulking around, lecturing to uh, Doc's offspring, right? And, yeah. and it made him mad. But the point was that it showed, it confirmed the importance of getting new devotees. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure his offspring were Krishna conscious. And Narada Muni was, was trying to make them more Krishna conscious. But Daksha was getting new souls. Literally, those souls had to come from somewhere, right? And giving them a chance. So that yeah. showed that the high uh, priority of that, that Krishna has. I, I like that. I like that uh, kind of bringing this very ancient story to uh, modern context that, yes. Yes, and Narada Muni and, and the renunciates also can bring people to Krishna consciousness, of course. Yeah, but you're right. Narada Muni has a, um, a reputation of stirring things up <laughs> for yeah. in the service of Krishna. The, the, the obvious one is from the 10th canto where he where 
um, he tells Kangsa, well, you know, how do you know Krishna hasn't already appeared? How do you know, you know, and, and he kind of gets him really paranoid to kill all of the uh, offspring of Vasudeva and Devaki. Yeah, he's always kind of churning things so that Krishna, in this case, he, he, he wanted to hasten the Lord's appearance um, in the case of the 10th canto. But yeah, it is, and we'll, we'll discuss this when we get to it in the next chapter, about how two great souls can have disagreement. Yeah, but thank you for bringing that. And uh, we didn't miss much. I only read the translation and uh, the uh, where are we? and the purport up into the uh, verse that's from the tantra near Naya. Near Naya. So everyone is. There's no such distinctions of higher and lower whether you have, you know, the forehead of Brahma or whether you're, uh, whatever, a sincere sweeper in the street, it is the level of uh, reciprocation that you're getting with Krishna due to purity and more than purity due to devotion that makes for any kind of distinction because we know there are distinctions, right? We read in the uh, nectar of instruction, the different levels of devotees, we learn about the progress of devotional service from a be uh, beginner's faith all the way up to pure love, the nine stages. So there are people who are more on the path than others. Um, but two things. One is it's very hard to know who's where on what part of the path. And more than two things, actually. And secondly, we can't tell by someone's material position what their closeness is with Krishna. And thirdly, the example given that uh, if you have, well, you, we can call it a green mango if you live in India or, or a, uh, you ever get a green, you ever get a rock hard um, avocado from the store and you just know that, okay, uh, it'll ripen in a few days. Or you could say, if you put it in a brown paper bag, apparently it ripens quicker, right? Um, but you know that that hard avocado or that green mango, that green mango is going to become yellow or reddish and will be quite tasty eventually. And similarly, the avocado is going to eventually be uh, just right for making your avocado toast and offering it to Krishna. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a millennial, you'll have avocado toast. Um, so, so we see even a person who's a beginner in Krishna consciousness, you know, they might be the green mango. But if they just follow the process nicely uh, and with determination, they will become a ripened mango one day, or we, we will become a ripened mango one day. So those, those three ways of looking at this uh, point in this purport, that people will make progress, that it's not based on, on material birth, and that there are stages, but those stages are... Um, they're a progression and people are on different levels. And it's not that Krishna doesn't like the neophyte devotee, the beginner on the path. He, he's, he, you know, he has great love for all of us and especially for one who takes any interest in approaching him with bhakti. Some thoughts on those points. You agree, Nandimuki? from the great state of New Jersey? Hare Krishna. 
Yes, of course. I think because that is when you do something that you are uh, how to say uh, you you are meant to do or you are designed to do, then it's under 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 original um, absolute platform. Mm. Okay, so when you're saying when you do your duty in devotional service, then Krishna is pleased. Is that what you were kind of getting at? Yes, the sanatana duty. Yeah, your sanatana duty. Yes, very good, very good. And Suganda has put a, a nice verse from the ninth chapter, verse 29. I envy no one, nor am I partial to anyone. I am equal to all. Okay, so we could just, if you just end the verse there, it's, a, it's, it's interesting. Samoham sarva bhuteshu. But <laughs> and it's interesting. Even in uh, when we when I do trainings in my off in my work, I say that if you use the word "but," the focus is on what comes after the "but," right? Like if I say Raghunandan Prabhu is a nice devotee, but and everyone wants to hear, oh, what's his fault? What's his problem? So here, Krishna says, "I envy no one. I'm uh, nor am I partial. I'm equal to all, but." Whoever renders service unto me in devotion is a friend is in me, and I am also a friend to him. So yes, so it's so Krishna has super souls equal to everyone, but he reciprocates with those who render service to him. Other thoughts. So it's interesting, right? Equal to everyone and not equal to everyone. It's like what? Right, but it's uh, it makes sense, and it's and it's one sense you could say it's depicting different parts of Krishna. You know, as super soul is equal to everyone, as Krishna, he's he's especially inclined to his devotees. So that should be an inspiration for us to become more and more one of Krishna's devotees. Okay, so now we're going up to oh, just up to forty-seven. Um, so Krishna is responding to Daksha's prayers. And here up until verse 50, he's talking about perceiving the Lord through his potencies, including those that he empowers. So 46. My dear Brahmano, austerity in the form of meditation is my heart. Vedic knowledge in the form of hymns and mantras constitutes my body. And spiritual activities and ecstatic emotions are my actual form. The ritualistic ceremonies and sacrifices, when properly conducted, are the various limbs of my body, and the unfor and the unseen good fortune proceeding from pious or spiritual activities constitutes my mind. And the demigods who execute my orders in various departments are my life and soul. Be 47, before the creation of this cosmic manifestation, I alone existed with my specific spiritual potencies. Consciousness was then unmanifest, just as one's consciousness is unmanifest during the time of sleep. And I just saw one sentence in this purport that really stuck out for me, and I, I really appreciate it. It's the um, second sentence, uh, no, the third sentence in the purport. The Lord is a person who also has impersonal features. So if people just understood that, it would be amazing. Or if we understood that, Krishna is a person who has an impersonal feature. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, some, 
a lot of people have this kind of vague, impersonal idea of God. And I think even for us as devotees, you know, Brahman is not totally clear about what it is. <laughs> but, but when we understand Brahmanohi Pratisht Aham, that Krishna is the basis of Brahman, then we go, okay, whew, I don't have to worry too much about Brahman. I can just, you know, serve Krishna and it's all good. So it's, it's a nice sentence. The Lord is a person who has an imperson, who has impersonal features. Hmm. So he has, you know, Krishna is so great. He has so many. Well, of course, we know Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavan Iti, Shabdite, as quoted in the verse in this purport, that he has these three main features, Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. But we also know, he, we know that as Bhagavan, he has so many different features, right? Um, <coughs> he has Lord Varaha and, and Krishna and Balaram, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he's a person who has an impersonal feature. That, I, I, that, wouldn't that be wonderful if people could understand that? Yeah, he's a person who has an impersonal feature. And, and people get such a, they get, you know, we are meant to have such a higher taste, this, this connection with the Supreme Personality of God. And if we don't have, feel that, we need to work on our, on our sincerity. Because, as we've, as we've said before, people write books and books and start whole huge organizations all from tasting a little bit of Brahman realization, a little bit of, you know, in, you know uh, mindfulness or something like that, which is, you know, like we've said, it, it's getting close to the mode of goodness and to, uh, to approaching Brahman, not even having Brahman realization, but approaching it. And so we should, you know, we should be so, we, if we practice Krishna consciousness nicely and we make advancement, you know, it's, com right, it's compared to the ocean, compared to the water that's in a, you know, the impression in a mud that a cow might leave, right? What, what is that, about this big, smaller, this big, compared to the ocean? <laughs> right. So... It's quite a meditation that God is a person who has impersonal features. Hmm. Some discussion on that point. Hare Krishna Prabhu. Um, it requires a, a certain level of bhakti to have a, an understanding of that particular sentence. That hmm. God is a person with an impersonal feature. Otherwise, I, a person might be following the Jnana Yoga path or the Ashtanga Yoga path, they will not have that complete picture or the complete understanding because as Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Dadami Buddhi Yogam Tam, he, from within he gives that knowledge to understand him. Mm. So this is possible for people who are practicing Bhakti. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. In at least some that bhakti is needed, right? At least some, yes. Mm. I remember Ravinder Superbu saying that he was talking about Christianity, and he said that some that often the 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 God that some Christians philosophize about and the God that they pray to are quite different. <laughs> mm -hmm. They pray in a very personal way, but some of the philosophy tinges a little bit on you know the universal energy or even perhaps some Mayavad concepts. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I didn't, 
I can't remember the details that he spoke about on that. He, one of the most amazing sets of lectures I've ever heard is um, called Defeating Mayavadi Philosophy. It's 24 lectures and it, you, can, you can listen to it for free on vihe.org. And it's, 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 it's an amazing, very well-researched because he doesn't just talk about Indian philosophy, he also talks about Western philosophy and Western religions uh, and that. But, you know, it's, as we know, there's so many different reasons why personalism is a challenge. And if you read the chapter, the verse 10 of the fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, the purport, Prabhupada explains that so vividly. So maybe we should just spend a minute on that. Um, it's one of the most incredible purports, 410, one, one part of it where um, he says, such materialists cannot even imagine that there is a transcendental body which is imperishable, full of knowledge, and eternally blissful. In the, material, in the materialistic concept, the body is perishable, full of ignorance, and completely miserable. Therefore, people in general keep the same bodily idea in mind when they are informed of the personal form of the Lord. For such materialistic men, the form of the gigantic material manifestation is supreme. Consequently, they consider the supreme to be impersonal. And because they are too materially absorbed, the conception of retaining the personality after liberation from matter frightens them. When they are informed that spiritual life is also individual and personal, they become afraid of becoming persons again. And so they naturally prefer a kind of merging into the impersonal Brahman. Generally, they compare the living entities to the bubbles of the ocean, which merge into the ocean. This is the highest perfection of spiritual existence attainable without individual personality. So now listen to this. This is a kind of fearful stage of life, devoid of perfect knowledge of spiritual existence. Furthermore, there are many persons who cannot understand spiritual existence at all, being, being embarrassed by so many theories and by contradictions of various types of philosophical speculations. They become disgusted or angry and foolishly conclude that there's no supreme cause and that everything is ultimately void. Such people are in a diseased condition of life. Some people are too materially attached and therefore do not give any attention to spiritual life. And some of them want to merge into the supreme spiritual cause. And some of them disbelieve in everything, being angry at all sorts of spiritual speculations out of hopelessness. This last class of men take to the shelter of some kind of intoxication and the resultant hallucinations are sometimes accepted as spiritual vision. So then this is the uh, crux of it. One has to get rid of all three stages of material consciousness, attachment to material life, fear of a spiritual personality, uh, personal identity, and the conception of void that arises from the frustrations of life. To get free from these three stages of material, uh, of the material concept of life, one has to take proper shelter of the Lord guided by the bona fide spiritual master and follow the disciplines and regulative principles of devotional life. Isn't that, a, that's a, I find that to be a very powerful purport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, extremely insightful that we, we you know, we fe we, uh, we're fearful people in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, you want to say something? Yeah. It's probably not warranted because, uh, and I didn't want to say this, but Nani Muki, what she said, made me want to say it. 
the tr- of <clears throat> the translation saying I am equal, right? Yeah. The Lord saying I am equal. Well, how do we know that God is not humble? We don't know that. He can't help the fact that he's great, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just the way he is. He wasn't even born. He he just is that way. Right? Uh, he didn't work to get that way. He just is that way. So right. maybe so. Well, anyway, I guess the point I'm trying to make is it doesn't matter what your visualization is as long as you come to the right conclusions. If I'm a gorilla, guess what? I think God is a, looks like a gorilla, right? Uh-huh. But, but <laughs> as long as we're able to realize that there is an impersonal and impersonal, then the details don't matter. The main thing is to get to the right knowledge. Uh, okay. Knowing, knowing, rather than thinking you understand everything. Yeah. Again, I'm saying that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, devotees are very attracted to the details about Krishna, you know, his, his pastimes, his dancing, like that. So I don't think you were saying we shouldn't be interested in that. Now you went on mute. That helps you get to the right place. That's what I'm saying. That's good. So let everybody have their own visualization. As long as you get to the right place, as long as you realize that there is a personal and impersonal if you want to think God looks like a, uh, a gorilla, if you're a gorilla, then there's no sin in that, I don't think. Uh, but, you know. Well, I haven't talked to gorillas lately. <laughs> uh, when I was growing up, there was a horse who could talk, <laughs> Mr. Ed. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but um, and most people are way too young to know, know what I'm talking about. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure. I just want to make sure... Uh, you, we have it uh, right according to Shastra. So mm-hmm. on one level, Krishna, you know, I, I always like this point. I think, I, again, I heard it from Ravinda Superbhu, that Krishna is who he is. And yeah. whether we know that or not, or accept it or not, that doesn't change his flute playing or his, yeah. his pastimes. Yeah, okay, okay. Cool. But my, my opinion, which I guess all my studies haven't dislodged the opinion, right? Okay. It's that basically whatever I think is wrong. <laughs> it may be mostly right, but when I get there and I and I meet Krishna, I'm going to find out how I was wrong in in some respects, right? Right. I so see. It, yes. Everything I think is su- suspect that it could be erroneous. Right. But, uh, and could, at the same time, like for example, when we're reading Krishna's words in the Bhagavad Gita, we then we don't have to worry about being wrong if we're hearing his words. That yeah. we accept this right, yeah. But what, yeah, what we speculate about, uh, we might get right, we might get wrong sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let us uh, continue on then, because I, I just wanted to highlight that one sentence. Sometimes I, there's one sentence in a purport that just goes, you know, I think is really significant. Okay, so in the last verse that we're going to study, although we're, we're going to read all the verses, is verse 50. So we're going up to verse 50. We're on 48. I am the reservoir of unlimited potencies. So yes, that's a good point, Andy. He's just stating the fact. He's not like, you know, Muhammad Ali saying, I am the greatest, right? Uh, Krishna's just stating the fact that he's the reservoir of unlimited potencies, and therefore I am known as unlimited and all-pervading. From my material energy, the cosmic manifestation appeared within me. And in this universal manifestation appeared the chief being Lord Brahma, who is, the, who is your source and is not born of a material mother, 49 and 50. When the chief 
Lord of the universe, Lord Brahma, Swayambhu, having been inspired by my energy, was attempting to create. He thought himself incapable. Therefore, I gave him advice. Do you remember this from the third canto? We studied it so long ago. Lord Brahma's prayers for creative energy. And in concordance with my instructions, he underwent extreme difficult, extremely difficult austerities. Because of these austerities, the great Lord Brahma was able to create nine personalities, including you, to help him in the functions of creation. And Prabhupada writes, nothing is possible without tapasya. Isn't that an interesting statement? It means austerity. Lord Brahma, however, was empowered to create this entire universe because of his austerities. The more we engage in austerities, the more we become powerful by the grace of the Lord. Therefore, Rishabdev advised his sons, one should engage in penance and austerities to attain the divine position of devotional service. By such activities, one's heart is purified. In our material existence, we are impure, and therefore we cannot do anything wonderful. But if we purify our existence by tapasya, we can do wonderful things by the grace of the Lord. Therefore, tapasya is very important, as stressed in this verse. So this is in a, a timely purport, because in uh, approximately 13 days, did I get that right? Kartik begins, or 12 days? Somebody could check on that, perhaps. Um, and it also depends on how you begin Kartik. Some people begin on the Akadasi before the full moon. Some people begin on the full moon. Um, but it is a time for, it's a very special time. We chant the Dhammadarastika prayer, 14 days, Jay says, at least in England. Um, we chant the Dhammadarastika prayer every day. We offer a lamp to uh, the deity of Krishna. Um, these days, I guess a lot of us will be doing it at home instead of coming to the temple. Let's do it. And we may all take some special uh, vows to uh, perform some austerity. Some of us might decide I'm not going to eat sweets for the, the, for the whole uh, Kartik. Or some may, um, you know, have one meal a day. Or, you know, um, if you're a sannyasi performing chattamasya, you may just have unsalted kitri and you um, just eat once a day and there's ways to eat and all kinds of different austerities that one can perform. Mostly, most of our austerities that we're suggested to do as devotees is austerities connected with bhakti. And so I don't even know if austerity is the right word, but taking vows to chant extra rounds or to read so much from Bhagavad Gita or other shastras. Mm. But it's nice to, uh, to take advantage. Prabhupada in 1972, I believe, did what is another word for Karti is Urja Brata. U-R-J-A. U-R-J-A. And he did that. He went to Vrindavan. Usually people go to Vrindavan as, to join Karti. Um, and he uh, gave class every day in the, Radha, in the courtyard of the Radha Damodar Temple on the Nectar of Devotion. And he actually went there for... The one time he performed Urdhva Bhatta. The other times he was just preaching around the world and couldn't, you know, come back to Vrindavan for a whole month because of his schedule was so tight. And even in one, one letter to His Holiness Jaipataka Maharaj, 
he says that it's not that important. That uh, it's more for non-devotees when uh, or people who are just taking the Christian consciousness. He says it's kind of like when a when a store has a sale because they want to entice people to come into their store. Um, so when Prabhupada says different things at different times, I usually take that to mean that it's a detail rather than a principle. But some details are important. And I believe that this is uh, this can be, if we wish it to be, an important detail where we can make some real spiritual advancement by performing some kind of tapasya. Um, and that could be, like I said, the tapasya of more hearing and chanting. Um, and if you can perform from some kind of physical tapasya that doesn't hurt your health or something, that's also a uh, that's also a possibility. Mm. And they also said sometimes that we don't brag about our our vow. And one little trick that I I don't know if it's a trick, but one little thing that I found was um, some. Let's say I I promised that I was going to chant twenty five rounds a day, so nine more rounds than my minimum sixteen. And I remember the first year or two doing that, um, I would say, oh my God, it's like, it's nine o'clock at night and I still have six extra rounds I have to chant, you know, and I'd be, you know, oh, like falling asleep and chanting, you know. So what, what I did, what, I, uh, what I've been doing in recent years is something like this, that I'll take nine and multiply it by, what is it, usually 28 days in the Vedic calendar for a month. And I'll say whatever nine times 28 is, uh, I'll say I'll chant that many rounds. And some days I'll chant, you know, 20 extra rounds. Some days I only have time for five, but it all will come out to that number by the end. And I found that was a little less anxiety. Uh, except one year, I remember I had to chant so many extra rounds in the last few days of Kartik. <laughs> but somehow or other taking advantage of uh, the Kartik uh, brut. Historically, by the way, Kartik wasn't always a very big deal in ISKCON. Um, we used to chant Dhamma Darastakam even when I joined in the 70s. But I didn't know, I didn't understand Kartik at all. I didn't, understand, I didn't know anything about it, nothing. All I knew is we used to chant this prayer to Lord Damodar uh, uh, during the month. But, and I used to do a lot of traveling in a van on uh, distributing books. So I, wasn't at a temple that was even doing that, so we almost we often neglected that. But 1987, everything changed in ISKCON in terms of Kartik. And that was the year that two things happened. It was the beginning of the Brajmandal Prikama, the walking barefoot, or well, walk, you don't have to be barefoot, but walking all around Vrindavan for a month, and quite an austere month at that. And it was also the first semester of the Vrindavan Institute for Higher Education. And that they were both in Vrindavan and gradually they became quite popular and, and more and more people. And then Radhanath Swami started bringing his 5,000, 6,000 people on his yatra there. And one year, and so Kartik is, is, you know, primarily performed in, in, uh, Vrindavan. And so one time I had the vow or two or three years in a row because I was serving and in Vrindavan and doing management. My vow was to remain sane. <laughs> that was it. No extra austerities. Just somehow remain sane with all these thousands of devotees coming and the temple room was packed. And, and you know, it was just, it, it, was, it was so wild. <laughs> and then one year, 
it got to be so much that uh, myself and two devotees, we went to Jagannath Puri for Kartik. <laughs> Everyone's going to Vrindavan. <laughs> we, we left and went to Puri. But there's something there about, because uh, the purport talks about Tapasya. <clears throat> so some thoughts on Kartik or vows or austerities. What are your thoughts? Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes, Danimuki. Just talking about tapasya, I find something on this topic also in the verse that we just covered. Okay. It's in verse 46. Oh, okay. That's, we just covered it, yes. Yes, and the Lord said, said to Daksha, my dear Brahmana, austerity in the form of meditation is my heart. Mm. Yes. And also, you see that in the second paragraph of the purport, Srila Prabhupada kind of uh, gives uh, another perspective of what does he mean by tapasya. He's, he wrote, to engage in tapasya or denial of material activities is the first principle of spiritual life. Yes. But then he, yes, uh, the first principle. Um, yes, and so we perform, well, so we have our four basic tapasyas, right? No gambling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then our main tapasya is to engage in bhakti. You know, there's also, and this is so, this is always like the, not always, but often the case in, uh, discussions about Shastra and things that one can, uh, and I don't know if um, uh, Suganda can find this verse. It's not as easy to find as others, but there's a verse that basically says, if, um, what is it that, it goes tapasa kim. Uh, if, if one is, oh, if one is Krishna conscious, what is the use, what is the need for austerities? And if one is not Krishna conscious, what is the use of austerities? And here it is. If one is, if one is worshiping the Lord properly, what is the use of severe penances? And if one is not worshiping the Lord, what is the use of severe penances? If she Krishna is realized within and without uh, everything that exists, what is the use of severe penances? And if she Krishna is not seen within and without everything, what is the use of severe penances? <laughs> so then you might say, oh my God, what's going on? So Gandhi, do you know where that's from? I don't know if you can find the source of that. Yeah, it's Narad Pancharatya. Ah, Narada Pancharatya. Thank you so much. So these actually are not contradictory uh, if, if we think about them more deeply. Um, if, uh, but, well, first let me just say the balance is that we are, in, in, the general encouragement is to perform austerities for Krishna's pleasure. And Prabhupada would be critical of people that perform austerities, for example, to gain political power, or Hiranyakashipu's austerities to perform, you know, to be a more, you know, to be able to take over the universe. So, um, one one important instruction when we're considering tapasyas is motivation, right? And the motivation should be to please Krishna. The motivation to, should be to make spiritual devotional advancement and the motivation may be to get some realization that i'm not this body 
Uh, but and then of course we go from there that I'm spirit soul, part and parcel of Krishna. So this verse is saying, well, if you're fully Krishna conscious, you don't have, you know, why? What's the need for austerities? You already, you already made it, right? And if you're not a devotee, so then you perform austerities, but they're useless because you're not doing them for the right purpose. That that's kind of what Narada is getting at. Um, I don't think he's saying everyone should just enjoy life because we understand that the gratification of our senses is the binding force in this world. So we should perform austerities, we should just do them appropriately. Is that all right, Nandimuki? Yes. Okay, what are your other thoughts? Kartik thoughts or austerities? Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes, Ananda Rupa Mataji. So um, regarding your point, which you just said that it should be done with the motivation or intent to please Krishna. Yes. So I I pulled up a verse here and thought it was message was nice to share with everyone. This is from this chapter only, verse five from Purport. It says, "A sadhu, a devotee, is never angry. Actually, real feature of devotees who undergo tapasya." Austerity is forgiveness. And although a Vaishnava has sufficient power in tapasya, he does not become angry when put into difficulty. If one undergoes <laughs> tapasya but does not become a Vaishnava, however, one does not develop good qualities. And then there are examples given of Hiranakashipu and Raman. That's fantastic. So, Thank you for finding that. Yeah. Okay. And then there's another thing. This is from Bhagavad Gita, chapter 17. We you know... Uh, Lot of talk is there on austerities and penances and charities and mm-hmm. how they purify even the great souls. So this verse is from uh, this is chapter seventeen Bhagavad Gita verse five and six and I'll just read the translation. Those who undergo severe austerities and penances not recommended in scriptures, performing them out of pride, egotism, lust, and attachment, who are impelled by passion and who torture their body organs as well as super soul dwelling within are known to be demons. So basically, uh, Prabhupada has clarified actually in several places that it's highly recommended to engage in austerities and penances. For for example, we follow regulative principles and do fasting and all that. However, it's very important to understand we are doing it to please Krishna and not not bringing right. a torture on ourselves or developing such anarthas within our hearts. Yes. Thank you for that. And, and, you know, we can, we've talked about this before, I believe, but we can perform us, our bodies, you know, if we can, we can perform austerities, our bodies can perform more austerities than we think. Like, uh, I told you uh, my experience in the past, but uh, I haven't been doing it recently, but that the first two or three times I tried to do near Jalakadasi, it was hard, you know, just no water, anything. And I noticed after the third or fourth time, it became quite easy body just kind of got accustomed to that. Or I know, for example, uh, Vaisheshikabu, he's, he's a little more sensible. He, he just takes water every kadasi. He drinks as much water as he needs. And, that, and the body, again, will revolt the first few times. But And again, it, you know, if your doctor says it's not a good idea, obviously we're not suggesting that. Um, but my point is that we do find that we are more adaptable creatures than we think. Anything else on this important topic? Okay, then let's uh, let's finish this chapter and move on to the next chapter, verse fifty-one. My dear son Daksha Prajapati uh, Panchajana has a daughter named 
Asikmi, Asikmi, who, whom I offer to you so that you may accept her as your wife. Now unite in sexual life as man and woman, and in this way, by sexual intercourse, you will be able to beget hundreds of children in the womb of this girl to increase the population. After you give birth to many hundreds and thousands of children, you will also be captivated by the illusory energy and will engage... Oh, wait, wait. After, being, after you give birth to many hundreds and thousands of children, they will also be captivated by the illusory energy and will engage like you in sexual intercourse. But because of my mercy to you and them, they will also be able to give me presentations in devotion. Sukadev Goswami continued, after the creation of the entire universe, the Supreme Personality of Godhead Hari had spoken in this way in the presence of Prajapati Daksha. He immediately disappeared as if he were an object experienced in a dream. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta Purpose of the sixth canto, fourth chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam entitled The Hunksaguya Prayers Offered to the Lord by Prajapati Daksha. And now Narnamuni cursed by the by Prajapati Daksha. So we're going up to verse 11 is the first one we're studying, I believe. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, Sri Sukadeva Goswami continued, impelled by the illusory energy of Lord Vishnu, Prajapati Daksha begot 10,000 sons in the womb of Panchajani. My dear king, these sons were called the Haryashvas. My dear king, all the sons of Pradapati Daksha were alike in being very gentle and obedient to the orders of their father. When their father ordered them to beget children, they all went to the western direction. In the west, where the river Sindhu meets the sea, there is a great place of pilgrimage known as Narayana Sharas. Many sages and, other advanced, and others advanced in spiritual consciousness live there. In that holy place, the Haryashas began regularly touching the lake's waters and bathing in them, gradually becoming very much purified. They became inclined towards the activities of Paramahamsas. Nevertheless, because their father had ordered them to increase the population, they performed severe austerities to fulfill his desires. One day, when the great sage Narada saw those boys performing such fine austerities to increase population, Narada approached them. The great sage Narada said, my dear Haryashvas, uh, you, have not, uh, you have not seen the extremities of the earth. There is a kingdom where only one man lives and where there is a hole from which having entered, no one emerges. A woman there who is extremely unchaste adorns herself with various attractive dresses and the man who lives there is her husband. In that kingdom, there is a river flowing in both directions a wonderful home made of 25 materials, a swan that vibrates various sounds, and, and an automatically revolving object made of sharp razors and thunderbolts. You have not seen all this, and therefore you are inexperienced boys without advanced knowledge. How then will you create progeny? Alas, your father is omniscient, but you do not know his actual order. Without knowing the actual purpose of your father, how will you create progeny? Sri Sukadeva Goswami said, hearing these enigmatic words of Narada Muni, the Haryashvas considered them with their natural intelligence without help from others. Okay, so now here's their interpretation. Uh, I didn't know exactly how to do this um, because it's such, it's so interesting. They, 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 we go through, you know, because Narada is speaking um, very indirectly, right? 
it's it's not so easy to follow exactly what he's trying to say. He's speaking metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, you know, what? But at the same time, the Haryash is very pure. They understood. So, uh, you know, he's speaking in a roundabout way. But let's, so I think we should go through uh, the the statements that Narada said and then how the Haryash was incred- in, 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 correctly interpreted them. So we'll be dancing around a little bit, but I think that's the best way to understand what's going on. So he says, right, he said, as we just read, uh, my dear Harsh, as you have not seen the extremities of the earth, you are inexperienced boys without knowledge. How then will you create progeny? And so the Haryash was understood this point in verse 11. Okay, so going from six to eight, where everything has been discussed, so they first address or they first understand that point in uh, verse 11, where they say the word boo, the earth refers to the field of activities, the material body, which is the result of the living ent- of the living beings actions is his field of activities. And it gives him false designations since time immemorial. He has received various types of material bodies, which are the roots of bondage to the material world. If one foolishly engages in temporary fruit of activities and does not look t- toward the cessation of bondage, what will be the benefits of his actions? So yes, we, they, we have to know this before we can uh, create progeny. And Prabhupada in the purport um, uh, notes that people in general, they don't desire freedom from material action, nor do they know how to get free from that. And we'll, we may look at that purport a little later, but at the end, Prabhupada talks about... Uh, he cautions us. He says, Maya is very strong. She is expert in putting impediments in the way of this understanding. Therefore, sometimes one comes to the Krishna consciousness movement, but again falls into the clutches of Maya, not understanding the importance of this movement. So, okay, so now the king and the kingdom. Narda said that there is a kingdom where only one man lives. And the Haryashvas, they recognize that he was referring to the one man is the eternal Supreme Lord. They say in verse 12, the only enjoyer is the Supreme Personality of Godhead who observes everything everywhere. He is full of six opulences and fully independent of everyone else. He is never subject to the three modes of material nature, for he is always transcendental to this material creation. And Prabhupada explains the same thing in the purport that there's only one proprietor, and that is the Supreme Lord. So then Narada talks about the whole W, uh, not, not W, H-O-L-E of hopelessness. And the Hariyashvas, they understand this. And this is in, um, in verses 12 and 13. That if the members of human society do not understand him, the Supreme, through their advancement in knowledge and activities, but simply work very hard like cats and dogs all day and night for temporary happiness, what will be the benefit of their activities? Hardly once has a person who has entered the lower planetary system known as Patala been seen to return. Similarly, if one enters the Vaikuntha Dham, he does not return to this material world. If there is such a place from which having gone, one does not return to this miserable material condition of life, what is the use of jumping like monkeys in this temporary world and not seeing the understanding and not seeing or understanding that place? What will be the profit? 
And Prabhupada explains in the purport that human beings should not waste their time jumping like cats and monkeys without real benefit. Okay, so then the next thing Narada said was that there's a prostitute who continually changes her dress. And the Hariyashwas, they understood these words about how the soul becomes bewildered. And it's our passion for pleasure that causes us to look outward away from Krishna. And they explained this in uh, 14 and 15. I hope this is, I know I'm speaking a lot, but I'm trying to connect the verses six to eight with the Hariyashva's understanding. I hope I'm not going too fast. If I am, just cut me off and ask a question. So they, they, explain, that they, they explain their understanding in 14 and 15, mixed with the mode of passion. The unsteady in, uh, intelligence of every living entity is like a prostitute who changes dresses just to attract one's attention. If one fully engages in temporary fruit of activities, not understanding how this is taking place, what does he actually benefit? What does he actually gain? If one becomes the husband of a prostitute, he loses all independence. Similarly, if a living entity has polluted intelligence, he prolongs his materialistic life. Frustrated by material nature, he must follow the movements of the intelligence, which brings various conditions of happiness and distress. If one performs fruit of activities under such condition, what will be the benefit? Okay. Um, so the Haryash was understood that this um, purpose of life is best realized by, you know, developing spiritual commitment and determined focus, not chasing, you know, petty material enjoyments. Okay. Now there's a one or two more. Uh, so then there's the four confrontations. Narada talks about the four challenges that confronts the soul in their search for pleasure. <clears throat> and he lists them, right? The, in the kingdom, there is a river flowing in both directions. There is the wonderful home made of 25 materials. There is a swan that vibrates various sounds. And an automatically revolving object made of sharp razors and thunderbolts. Ouch. So the river flowing in four directions, the Hariash was explained in verse 16. Material nature functions in two ways, by creation and dissolution. Thus, the river of material nature flows both ways. A living entity who unknowingly falls into this river is submerged in its waves, and since the current is swifter near the banks of the river, he is unable to get out. What will be the benefit of performing fruitive activities in that river of Maya? So interesting, right? When you try to get out, it's not so easy because by the banks... It, it flows very swiftly and it can drown us. Okay. Now the 25, the home of 25, ele, uh, 25 elements, the Supreme Lord is the, uh, the Haryash was explained. Oh no, wait, wait, that's not. Yes. Okay. The Supreme Lord is the reservoir of the 25 elements. And as a Supreme being, the conductor of cause and effect. So the 25 elements are, you know, we, we, we've studied those before, you know, the mind, the intelligence, false ego, the five sense objects, the, the uh, five working senses, the five knowledge acquiring senses, etc. And then the sounds of the swan, uh, ex the, explained in verse 18, the Vedic literatures, Shastras, vividly describe how, a, how to understand the Supreme Lord, the source of all material energies. Indeed, they elaborately explain these two energies. The swan, hunksa, is one who discriminates between matter and spirit, who accepts the essence of everything and who explains the means 
of bondage and the means of liberation. The words of scripture consist of variegated vibrations. If a foolish rascal leaves aside the study of these shastras to engage in temporary activities, what will be the result? And then finally, the, the, the uh, where is it now? The sharp razors and thunderbolts. Eternal time moves very sharply. And if made of razors and thunderbolts, and, and is made of, as if made of razors and thunderbolts, uninterrupted and fully independent, it drives the activities of the entire world. If one does not try to study the eternal elements of time, what benefit can he derive from performing temporary material activities? Okay, so we covered a lot there. I realize that, but I just thought I try to connect the the three verses that that Narada speaks with how the Hariyash was understood them. I hope I didn't bore you by all that reading. <clears throat> now, if we go to the um, purport that I wanted to talk about first was in verse eleven. And Prabhupada writes that this is a very important verse since all the living entities in the material world are very active, having obtained their particular types of bodies. A man works all day and night. So I just, I just thought this is if you, the vision that the envision what Prabhupada's saying. Everybody's active. Like they, we're in this material world. We're 212 or something like sovereign countries in this world and so many animals in this world. And so many birds and beasts, and, and you know, and all kinds of souls. And Srila Prabhupada saying, everyone's running around, active in the material world, trying to uh, having attained whatever body they've been awarded. So he said, a man works all day and night for sense gratification. And animals like hogs and dogs, they do their work for sense gratification. The birds and the beasts and other conditioned souls, they're engaged in fruitive activities without knowledge of the soul. So everyone's, I just thought that this was an amazing kind of imagery that everyone's running around trying to grasp some enjoyment from this world. And nobody, like, a, you know, the proverbial chicken with his head cut off and not having knowledge of the soul. So some thoughts on that, that, that or anything we just covered, which we covered a lot, or that, that, that image that Prabhupada is giving us in this uh, purport. No? We're, oh, Raghunanda, were you going to say something? Um, if, if a person can understand what Narada Muni had implied, then that person must have been like very, <laughs> very spiritually advanced. So basically, like Narada Muni was testing if they were ready <coughs> to, to, be a, to be nudged towards that higher position. And these sons were so qualified, they immediately understood what he was hinting at and Without anybody explaining it, they got the full meaning and said, okay, uh, we don't want to do what our father wanted to do, uh, asked us to do, and we are ready to follow your instructions, <laughs> Narada. That's a really nice observation, yeah. I mean, because I would have had my hand up saying, uh, Narada, could you explain this thing about the uh, razors? <laughs> I, don't get, I didn't get that one. Yeah. <laughs> and they all just, uh, that's right. And, and it was like a test because then, then Narada knew they were ready. They were ready. Very nice. I like that. Thank you. Other thoughts? I thought you were going to say something, Andy. I was looking at you. But... Yeah, yeah. I was pondering whether to say it, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> the at the end of uh, text eighteen, 
they ask a question, what will be the result, right? Uh -huh. But uh -huh. actually right before that, at the end of the, of the purport for 17, he answers, uh, Prabhupada answers in a very poetic way. He says, culminating in bottomless, topless passion. Yeah, yeah that was pretty heavy. I mean, heavy and um, insightful. That explains like temporary euphoria, which always ends up in what? It always crashes into some kind of depression, either more or less, right? So he's just explained the pretty much the whole range of, of that kind of emotion <laughs> going up and down. That will be the result. Yep, yep. Human society should study this, but instead of culturing, cul culturing this such knowledge, people are attracted to temporary happiness and sense gratification, culminating in bottomless, topless, topless passion. There is no profit in such activities. We must engage himself in the Christian consciousness. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I guess yes, actually, Gopal, Prabhu. Uh, please accept humble obeisances. Prabhu, I have a different perspective. Um, so why did Narada Muni, this is against the Supreme Lord's wish. Supreme Lord's wish is to, uh, you know, uh, expand the praja and that's their duty. And then, um, you know, I know um, Narada is like a great devotee, always with the Krishna. So do you have, do you have any additional thoughts about that? <laughs> Um, it's a really good question. <laughs> Where does it come up? It comes up a little later, right? Um, I mean, yeah. In other words, you, you could, you could, uh, I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to remember if there's a purple or purple that addresses this because you could say, one could argue that Daksha had some, uh, reasons to, to curse. Of course, the curse was a benediction ultimately, right? Um, and we could say that, you know, this is Krishna's Leela, that Narada would get this curse to not stay anywhere for a very long time. And that was a benediction because then he could save so many conditioned souls. Um, but you could not, we could rightly understand that Daksha was given a service by this Lord himself and Narada. Uh, interrupted that service, right? Um, but I think, but what we'll do, Shakshi Gopal Prabhu, is let's uh, let's cross that bridge when we come to it, because I think we should have a thorough discussion about that. And, I, and we probably won't finish it today, so I want to have a week to think about it. Um, but it's a great question. I mean, it's a yeah, it's a, you're 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 right on. I mean, we in the last chapter he got a direct instruction from God. And now this other person who's very close to God is saying is is basically <laughs> if someone did that in this con, they'd get in trouble. But Narada didn't get in trouble. You're gonna say something, Raghunanda Prabhu? Yes, Prabhu. Prabhu uh, even though yeah, Daksha had a desire and the Supreme Lord fulfills that desire, and the Supreme Lord also wants Rajini to be brought into the creation. But the purpose of Prajini being brought into the creation is for them to get connected with the Supreme Lord, which is the higher purpose of human life. Mm. So Narada Muni was not violating that principle in any way. And so Narada kind of won this argument, although he got cursed. Um, he lost the one with uh, Swayambhuva Manu in the fifth canto, right? With Priyavrata. It was very interesting. It was kind of somewhat similar, not exactly, you know, Prajini. It was to become the Priyavrata to become the king. 
And Narada was like, why? This guy's a, this guy, sorry. Uh, Priyavrata is um, a perfect candidate for brahmachari life. Why do you want to? And then in that one, Lord Brahma said, no, he's going to get married and become a king. <laughs> Um, and, and, at, and if you remember, one of the most important parts of that pastime is that Narada felt no, um, what's the word, regret or disappointment in losing out, whereas Daksha kind of didn't take the same approach. Yeah, and it's, even in this case, Narada Muni is not overtly saying, like, you guys have to give up everything. He's just giving at them a hint. And the higher intelligence of the these ten thousand sons, they just decided, okay, this is what Narada Muni is in, hinting at is the higher purpose, and let me let us dedicate ourselves to that higher purpose. Yeah, yeah, they were already inclined in that way. They 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 made their voluntary decision based on that hint. That's a nice point, and probably we just read that earlier that. Um, they were inclined to the life of the Paramahansa, right? It says that, but because of their father's order, they were being um, faithful to that order. But they were already inclined. That's right. We just read that. Uh, I think it's in one of the translations, right? Yeah. It, now, uh, anything else on this point? Because we are going to cover it again a little later. So in uh, that, uh, back to that purport... What purport was I reading from? I'm getting I got temporarily lost. 6511. 6511, thank you. At the end of it, Prabhupada uh, brings up a point. Um, Our Krishna conscious movement is especially meant for such enlightenment. We are trying to enlighten humanity so that people may come, this is at the very end, to the understanding that they should work hard in tapasya for self-realization and freedom from the continuous bondage of birth, death, old age, and disease in one body after another. Maya, however, is very strong. We read that part before, so I just thought I'd read that. Okay, so let's go on to the purport in 16. One may be submerged in the waves of the river of Maya in the very beginning of the purport in 16. But one may also get free from the waves by coming to the banks of knowledge and austerity. Near these banks, however, oh, this is the point. Near these banks, however, the waves are very strong. If one does not understand how he is being tossed by the waves, but simply engages in temporary fruitive activities, what benefit will he derive? So it's kind of that idea of looking down at our life and seeing when are we, when am I engaged in the service of Maya? When am I engaged in the service of Krishna? Um, because if we're not aware that we're in Maya, then we, there's no question of making an attempt to get out of Maya. Maya mean, meaning illusion. So that, that consciousness uh, is helpful, right? If one does not understand how he's being tossed by the waves, but simply just engages in temporary fruit activities, what benefit will he derive? So in one sense, we could say that uh, following up on what Raghunandam Prabhu said and as an address to Shakshi Gopal Prabhu's point, um, Narada made them aware. He gave them this awareness of something higher than producing progeny. And at the very end, the last sentence, last two sentences, one must understand how Maya works 
and how one can be released from the tossing waves of the river of nescience or illusion. That is one's first duty. So, you know, Maya has her ways of, uh, she has, some are very universal, some of them are unique to us. So we should know the unique, the unique ways that Maya tries to get us engaged in her service. And, you know, we, like I said, there'll be general ones, but then there's also ones custom designed for, um, for Henry <laughs> or whatever. I was just trying to find someone. Custom designed for Brajavihari Das. <laughs> right and so we should know the uh the general ones and the uh the designer ones we all have you know our designer clothing in the term in the sense of how maya affects us <clears throat> any thoughts on that maya is like that old saying um she doesn't want anybody to be a a member of a club that would have uh them as, as yes, as her club. If you want to be in her club, she doesn't want you to be in Krishna's club. Right, 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 right. Yes, yeah. And if anyone ever wants to read a uh, kind of a bona fide book outside of Krishna consciousness, uh, the uh, Screw Tape uh, Discourses by C.S. Eliot. Screw uh, tape le- uh, Screw tape letters. The screw tape letters. Thank you. Yeah, it's brilliant. And uh, Screw Tape is uh, the. It's a conversation between the devil, who's uh, a very expert representative of Maya, and Screwtape, who is a, a neophyte uh, servant of Maya. Uh, and he's teaching him how to, he's basically, the devil is teaching Screwtape how to, um, how illusion works and how to keep people in illusion. Right, Andy? It's, it's very, very well written. Yeah, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Yeah. Lewis, yeah. yeah. Smart, smart person. And it's very much uh, in line with our, our, our philosophy. It's nice to see it from a different point of view. Anything else? Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes. So uh-huh. it's interesting how every moment, every situation, we, are, we have to make choices. Uh, especially, you know, now as uh, devotees, like aspiring to be devotees on this devotional path uh, with this knowledge and teachings, we are presented with all kinds of situations and we have to make choices what we have to do. We, we are purely not living like uh, in an ashram or something, like living a householder's life outside. Every single moment we are dealing with challenges. <laughs> and uh, we have to keep family happy. You have to, you know, you, there you may have people in the family who are not so wanting to be uh, Krishna consciousness every moment, Krishna conscious, and they may want to engage in Maya activities. Um, they may have their reasons, so we cannot uh, totally <clears throat> boycott them, yet we want to follow Krishna conscious path, keep our stability, right? Yes. And for this reason, we are spending so much time every day chanting, reading books and all that. You can't put it aside. I mean, it's really tough. It really gets tough at some times. Yes. So these uh, these uh, paragraphs and the purports we are reading right now, and right away it makes so much sense, and we want to remember it always. Sometimes we can't just apply it. Sometimes it's just forgetfulness. So. Yeah, yeah, and we are by nature forgetful, so we have to keep reminding us by hearing and chanting. Yeah, nice point. Sometimes what helps me a little bit, uh, or inspires me a little bit, is 
And like you said, it's, 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 a, it's a rough road to get out of the grips of Maya. Um, and when I think of performing some austerities to do that, I think of what the austerities Prabhupada performed to come here with no money. I mean, you imagine, you just can't, can't even imagine what it's like to come on a steamship, have, steamship, have two heart attacks on the way. And all you have is this piece of paper with the name of somebody in Butler, Pennsylvania. You have no money and you have the name of one person. I mean, what if that person just said, oh, Fui, I'm not going to pick him up. I don't know what would have happened to Srila Prabhupada. Right? At least there was somebody from Traveler's Aid who I think put him on a bus to Butler or something like that and, and got him there. <laughs> but, you know, what an incredible austerity. And Prabhupada said he has deep faith Everything happened with chanting. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't have reference to exact uh, lecture, but he says he did everything on the strength of chanting. Sure. Yes, yes. And Suganda put a nice post here. Someone asked, Prabhupada, why is Maya so strong? Prabhupada answers, because your purpose is not strong. Yeah. So very good. Um, let's see. Let's not uh, try to rush to the next, but we've covered a lot today. And we will go over the purports to uh, 19 and 20 starting next week. Okay? But we're doing well. We're, we're, almost, we're halfway through the fifth chapter. It still is, it still is amazing that uh, we, um, we're going we're to be done with Bhakti Bhava when we're finished this canto. And as I said, we'll be giving out degrees for anyone who's attended um, more than 50% of the talks, you know, not the ISKCON degree, but the, it'll be a Bhakti Bhai Baba degree given out by, uh, by ISKCON of DC. So you can say you have Bhakti Bhai Baba. And also for the, I, I noticed there's a lot of people that listen to these lectures. I'm surprised that sometimes it's over 200 per week. So anyone, they can contact me. They can email me if they would like also, if they can show that they, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll trust their honesty that they've been listening uh, all along to them. Um, so thank you very much for all of your determination to, uh, to be here every week on a Sunday morning and share uh, our realizations and our thoughts on Srila Prabhupada's uh, purports and uh, Srimad Bhagavatam. It's very inspiring. So, thank you, Prabhu. Thank, thank you. Prabhu, yeah, have a very pleasant uh, week in Krishna consciousness and we will see you in what do I always say in 20 in uh six days and 22 and a half hours from now <laughs> <laughs> hey ball. Hey ball. Hey Krishna. thank you Prabhuji Hare Krishna